right, if you can just switch with somebody nearby and they will grade your quiz, write your initials at the bottom or your name at the bottom. Um, you can just switch, doesn't, yeah, just with anybody, it's fine. Okay, um, true or false? The eternality of Christ is directly linked with his deity. If his deity is established, then he must also be eternal. True. Yeah, it's basically straight from the book, right? That's one of the first things that you would have come across in your reading is on the eternality of Christ. Unless, and the you, unless you started at the wrong page. You saw, did you get it right? I did. Good for you. Name one direct proof, that's a verse, from either the Old or the New Testaments to the deity of Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, yes. Anybody else have one? Psalm 110, good. Which says, do you know what it says? Yep, the Lord said to my Lord, set in my right hand, while I make your enemies my footstool. Yeah, your footstool. Anyone else have a different verse, or they want to ask about a verse? I'm not going to say that's, yeah, I'm sorry, that doesn't qualify. Um, the direct proof verses from the book are John 1, 1, John 8, 58, Hebrews 1, 8, Colossians 1, 17, Micah 5, 2, Isaiah 9, 6. Any of those will be fine, and if you have anything, or if you want to argue your point, I can take it, but I don't, I don't think I'm going to take that one, sorry. What does the Old Testament, anybody have a question about that one? Are we good? Okay, what does the Old Testament prophecy, prophesy, Sorry? Did I spell prophesy wrong? I did. What does... I'm sorry. Did that confuse anybody? Yeah. What does... <laughs> no, it's not a free question. I just spelled prophesy wrong. What does the Old Testament prophesy, not prophecy, about the birth of Christ? Select all that apply. The manner, yes or no? Yes, right? The place, yes or no? The location, yes or no? No. It doesn't say a manger. No, it doesn't say a manger. The time of year, winter? No. The time of day, night? No. All those are no's. There's no, there's no reference. Now, there might be some hints somewhere, but like there's no reference to... There's, there's like Jesus being lowly, but the idea of him being in a manger is not prophesied in the Old Testament. The important part is the Old Testament. So, yes, the angels told the, the shepherds that they could go and find him in a manger. But that's not prophecy. Okay. Which psalm does Jesus quote while on the cross as fulfillment of prophecy? And I even gave you the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, this is a little bit harder. This is probably the hardest one I thought of these because I gave you Psalm 101, Psalm 22, Psalm 2, or Psalm 102. Does anybody know which one it is? Anybody want to venture a guess? I don't know what that means. 22, yes. Psalm 22 is one of those important Christological psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Right? Far from me in the words of my groaning. Um, that's when he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's... Aramaic or Hebrew is really Hebrew for my God, my God, Lama is why have you forsaken me? 
What is the significance to Jesus being from the line of David? I asked a short answer. What are some of the answers you got? Some about him being king, fulfilling prophecy. What'd you have? He gets extra points. No. What did he say? Being a king? He said, like his exact words? Or... Oh, look, I, I, I mean, yeah, sure. What? <laughs> Kevin, was it, was it, did, did you have any questions on your answer, on the short answer? Do you have any questions on the short answer? I guess I should ask. Yes. Perfect. 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 Yep. Perfect. Absolutely. One of his heirs, the seed. Is another word of saying that? Yep. David's throne, the idea of a throne, king, something like that, okay? All that, all that's the big point about David. I wrote one with chosen line. Chosen line, there it is. Chosen line, yep. That works. Just only look at half here. Okay, um, write the number correct out of five at the top and pass it in. Make sure the person who gave you theirs has the... Um, has their name at the top. Some of you homeschoolers don't know how to write your name at the top of your paper. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Just for Kevin. If you don't know who Kevin is, it's Kevin Womble. Kevin Womble? Yeah. Okay, thank you. So... Know your stuff better. Well, I mean, be prepared. You're prepared until you realize. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, take your notebooks, and then I'm going to do what I really was trying not to do, but I went through and had to redo some of the notes. So I'm giving you new notes starting at page 7. So you could take page 7 out, and we killed too many trees. I'm so sorry. If you could take one of these, please, and pass it around and replace this. It has a staple in it. The staple can come out. But everything after Unit 1, Christology, the Doctrine of Christ, you see that page 7? Everything after that? Can come out and go. In, you can fold it, put it in the trash, and take that and pass it around. Um, I should have enough. Here's a couple more. If you here's a here's a. Does everybody have one, or do you need one more? Here you go. I got more right here. Does everybody have one? Okay. So updated, updated uh, Christology Unit One. Also, I have here. How many people do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two. Good. I have enough. I am passing out um, something to help you with your first project. Um, these are three different. If you could take it and pass it, please. Yeah, we don't. Take one and pass the rest. Thank you. I thought that was one really thing. Homeschoolers. It's the worst. Um, that is one skill they don't get. They don't understand passing papers. They don't understand putting their name at the top. They don't understand good handwriting or all those. Hey, I was, I was homeschooled. I know how it goes. I know how it goes. Um, here's, what, here's what I did for you. You're going to thank me later. You're going to say, thank you, Pastor Marshall. You're such a nice guy. On the first page... Uh, you'll notice that this is an entry on Arianism from Keith, a new dictionary of theology. Turn the page. 
On the second page, Samuel Mikulowski at Arianism from the NIDCC, the New International Dictionary. Um, you okay? You looking for... I'll tell you what, we've got to pass them all the way around. I'm sorry. Um, thank you. I'm sorry. I should have split them like I did last time. And then um, the third article is on the other page here, on the one, two, three, fourth page, by Dennis Groh from AYBD, uh, which is the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, on Arius and Arianism. So I gave you several articles here. Uh, your charge, or your first project, is to defend the deity of Christ against the heresy of Arianism. This is what Arianism is. Okay? You can also go to Wikipedia if you want and do some reading there. Uh, we used to say don't go to Wikipedia, but honestly, Wikipedia is a pretty good source on stuff like this. Normally, it's pretty well vetted. Uh, people who, who edit those pages are experts. Uh, I've noticed it's very good, um, generally speaking. I've noticed very few problems with their... Uh, it's not authoritative. These are pretty good. These are published dictionaries. Yes, sir. Do you have a question? Yeah, I mean, use uh, Wikipedia, like you said, just... To, to get the gist of what it's about, but they usually put references in there. And a lot of times, you go to those references right online. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I would never cite Wikipedia. Don't yeah. cite Wikipedia in your in your in your papers Sometimes because. Teachers using it. No, the teachers don't mind. Here's the thing: Wikipedia is a good idea to get a get a a general gist of something like you're saying, the general knowledge. However, it is uh, published in a way so that anybody can edit it. Um, but there are moderators, so generally speaking, I don't recommend citing it in a, in, a, in a scholarly work, but when it comes to, and I would consider your papers scholarly works, but when it comes to these, these are dictionaries that you could cite. So I haven't actually read all of these articles. I would be fair, just to be fair, I, I went on my Bible program that I have, and I have access to these things, and I printed these off for you. So you can cite them, and you can look at them, and you can read them. You can also go online and do your own research, but I'm kind of helping you, okay? So I'll read this first before you go off the deep end of searching Google for stuff about Arianism, um, okay? Any questions on that? That's just for you. If you, have, uh, if you don't know what this means, it's New Bible, New Dictionary of Theology. That's the first one. The second one is the New International Dictionary of, oh, what is NIC? Let's see here. I think it's... Um, is it the Christian Church? Yeah, New International Dictionary of the Christian Church, NIDCC, and then Anchor Yale Bible Dictionaries, AYBD. All right. Let's look at your, uh, your notes, starting at Unit 1 Christology. So what you'll find is that I am basically tracking right along with your, your book. If you, I noticed that one of you was doing reading and you made an outline of the reading way did it, that's fantastic. You don't have to do that if you just want to go to your notes. If you go to your notes, the lecture notes that I'm giving you, I will add some things to that and I will expand, but generally speaking, we're gonna be following the, the, the textbook here because it's excellent. It's very, very good and it's, it does a good job of covering a lot of this material. So I give you a lot of the, the Bible text, Bible verses in your notes, so you don't have to be flipping around in your Bible the whole time. But uh, that's part of the reason I give you these, so you can also write inside these notes if you don't want to write inside your book, okay? So a lot of these notes are directly from there. 
We're talking today about Christology. Christology has to do with the doctrine of Christ. Uh, we have talked about systematic theology. And when we deal with uh, Christology, like any of these, you're going to see the word, um, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but the word Christ, ology has to do with the study of Christ, um, and specifically his life, his work, um, his death, his resurrection, uh, who he is and what he does. So his works and his being. We talk about the Christ. Um, this word, I need to tell you where this comes Does anybody know what the word Christ means or where it comes from? Um, uh, the word Christ is in Greek. Uh, it's Christos. Oops, sorry. That's, uh, or it looks like this. Christos. Okay. And Christos, it means uh, anointed one or chosen one. And it's, it's basically like um, the idea of, of the one who is anointed for king or to be a Messiah. Now, we say Jesus Christ. Christ is his title. That's, the, that's a title. Okay? So we also use the word Messiah when we talk about Christ. But this is a Hebrew word. Okay? And it, it's Mashiach. And it means the same thing. Christos and Messiah. So Christ and Messiah are the same, just in two different languages. Okay, so we talk about Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. Jesus is his personal name. Christ is his title. So Christology is the study of Jesus, the study of Christ. Um, and we're going to talk, begin with his preexistence and his eternality. And I liked what he said at the beginning. He says, you must hold to both eternality and the deity of Christ. This is on page seven in your notes right there at the very beginning. I think uh, if you go right to the unit one. Um, you must also believe, if you believe that Christ is not eternal, then you also believe that he is not God. If we establish his deity, then we should accept his preexistence. This is important because there are some, te- there are some uh, religions, some sects of Christianity. When I say sects, S-C-C-T-S, sections is where we get our word sect. Sects of Christianity that believe in, a, uh, in Christ not being fully God. Can you think of any of these? Or, or they do not believe in the, in the, um, uh, the orthodox view of, of Christ. Can you think of any? Jehovah's Witnesses is number one, right? They are Arians, right? They believe that Jesus is a created being, that he came into existence, and he's a, like a demigod, so to speak. He is a god. He is not the god. Uh, Mormons believe, in a sense, that Jesus was a child of Elohim, the father god, and then, he, and then um, just as we are the same children of the Heavenly Father. Okay, so they use the word Heavenly Father in a very physical way. They believe the Heavenly Father actually birthed spirit babies who are then mashed with human bodies once they're born. I mean, it's crazy stuff, but that is not theologically correct. You have to be careful how you, how you speak. There are a lot of uh, religions that believe the, do not believe in the deity of Christ or the eternality of Christ. They don't believe that Christ was from forever ago, that he is from eternity. They believe that he came into existence at some point. But the Jews, yeah, the Jews would deny the, the, the deity of Christ. They would say he's a rabbi or he's a rabbi uh, gone on his own way. Mm-hmm. We look at the direct proof. If we look at the Bible's proof for the eternality and the preexistence of Christ, these are connected we see it in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In NRK, Hain Halagos is the Greek, and that word, uh, in, our, in the beginning was the Word, mimics something very familiar. What does it mimic? What, what do you, when you read that, what does your mind go to? In the beginning was the Word. What does it sound like? 
Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. And it, it's intentional that way. John is saying, I am telling you that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? There is the identification of the Logos. This is a word you might hear. Um, the Logos is the Word. This is a, a, a title of Jesus. He is, the, he is in the beginning. He is the Word. And in this idea of was, there's different tenses in Greek. Uh, some tenses are our past tense, kind of like a dot. Like if your reference point is here, there's something that happened. Like I ate a hot dog. Okay, that's a point in the past. I will eat a hot dog in the future. Okay, um, there's also something called the perfect tense, which means it happened in the past and it has continuing results. We have that in English too. Perfect tense, it, and you would say it like this. Uh, you would draw it like this on a on a line. And the way that you would describe it is, I have eaten a hot dog. The difference is this. If you say, Hudson, are you hungry? And you say, no, I've eaten a hot dog. Meaning that he's not hungry because in the past he ate hot dog that has current, has current implications. He's not currently hungry because of something that happened in the past. That's, that's a perfect tense. Now, we, we use helping words to make that. That makes sense to us. And in Greek, they have that. There's also a, a, a tense in the, in the Greek that is a past tense that is linear. What it means is it happened in the past and it's continuing. Um, and this is the imperfect tense. This is what's used. In the beginning was the word. In the past, continuing action. Not like it, he was at one point, but may not be now. It's like he, he, there is this continuing uh, action of, of being. Uh, the continual existence, as he says in the text, of, of in the past time. The word was continually existing. It's not like the word came into being. He was, he was existing in the past. In the beginning was the word. Okay. Um, and we could get into all this stuff at length, but let's keep going to John 8.58. Jesus, speaking to the Jews, says this. Who wants to read John 8.58 from your notes here? Yes, sir. Uh, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say before Abraham was, I am. Okay, what does he mean by that? When he says before Abraham was... I am. Like, have you noticed this is capitalized? This is a title of deity. Where else does this show up in the Bible? God saying, I am who I am. Yeah, when Moses says, what shall I call you? God says, I am, I am. Or I am that I am. Better way of thinking about this is, um, I am, I am. Self-existent one. Okay? The that is kind of like, you know, I am, I am. That's my name. And his name Yahweh, Jehovah in the Old Testament, Yahweh is connected to the, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the verb for being, Yahi. Okay, it's connect, they're connected. This has the same root idea, Yahweh. Yahweh or Yahi, depending on how you want to say it. The, the, Hayah is another. These are all connected to the name for God. Okay? So I am is his name. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, when did Abraham live? What's our time? You remember your basic timeline? Do you remember I draw that out for y'all before? I haven't done it in this class yet. Rough, rough numbers? Anybody have an idea? Yeah, yeah. 2000 BC, rough, 
roughly. It really is 2100, but let's just say 2000 BC. Let's do this again. This, I love to do this. This is so helpful. I think if you can grab this, if you can understand this chart here, you will understand the Bible timeline pretty well. At 2000 BC, we have Abraham. Really, it's 2100 or so. 1500, we have Moses. Really, it's about 1444, right? Exodus. About 1000, we have David. Really about 1050, but you know who's counting? Right about that time. About 500, we have the exile and re or return, you know, the, uh, the exile, basically, to Babylon, right? Ezra, Nehemiah, and them coming back. A lot of prophets in this time frame. And so if you can think about it in these 500-year gaps, you understand that he's saying before Abraham was, I am. What a powerful deity uh, statement. And what do they do after he... Uh, after he says that, do you remember? They pick up rocks and stone him. They, they want to kill him because they recognize what he said. Um, Hebrews 1.8, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's speaking to the son. And he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. The statement refers to Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's where the statement is referring to. He is before all things, Colossians 1, and in him all things consist. He is before all things. There is nothing that exists that Jesus was after. You are not before all things. You are after a lot of things. A lot of things happened prior to your coming into the world, right? That's New Testament direct proof. Old Testament direct proof. We see this from Micah 5 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, notice this phrase, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Okay, he is, he is going forth, his going forth, his existing is from everlasting. And Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Father of Eternity, is what that means. Everlasting, he's Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. So, pretty, pretty powerful stuff. Any questions on those verses? Okay. We also have some indirect proof that, um, that Jesus' eternality and his preexistence, that um, he comes from heaven. Uh, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who comes down from heaven that is the son of man who is in heaven. John 3.13, Jesus says, if Christ came down from heaven, then Jesus' beginning could not have been in Bethlehem. Okay, simply put. Before coming to earth, he was in heaven. He says in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So coming down from heaven. That's, he's talking about his condescension, his Incarnation, which we'll discuss later. Christ's pre-incarnate work proves his eternal existence. So, the fact, do you know what pre-incarnate means? Before Yeah. So before his infleshing, <laughs> incarnate means he takes on human flesh. Christ does things prior to his coming to earth. When he does that, we don't actually speak of that as Jesus doing things. I just want to be, so you'll hear me, I might, I might slip up. But technically, when we speak of, of the work of the Son of God prior to his coming to earth, we speak of the Son, the work of the Son, S-O-N, 
Okay, the work, We might even say the work of Christ, but we're really usually saying the work of the Son of God. Uh, and we might say a pre-incarnate or a... Um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the other terms we've used. We'll get to those, but the idea is, is that we don't... Jesus is his name given to him when he is born as a baby. We typically refer to the Son of God prior to his coming to earth. So we see in John 1, 3, speaking of the word again, all things were made through him. What is that talking about? What event is that referring to? Creation. Creation. Was Jesus, the, was Jesus Christ the baby born before or after creation? Not a trick question. After. So his pre-incarnate work, the fact that he is involved in creation, the fact that he is the creator, means that he is preexistent. He, he existed prior to his... He did not come into existence as a baby. First um, Corinthians 8, Yet for us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Again, referencing the creation. Um, his titles, I started to put these in parallel so you can see some of these in charts. I hope that's helpful to you. His titles, T-I-T-L-E-S, Christ's titles prove his eternal existence. He is called Yahweh. That is, you notice John 12, 41 and Isaiah 6, 3 are, are contrasted or are referencing one another. So if you read, let's read John 12, 41 first on the right side. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him, speaking of Jesus. What things did he say? If you go back to Isaiah 6, 3, one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Speaking of when he sees Yahweh. Okay, another thing, and I've mentioned this many times, but please bear with me. When we talk about your Bible, your English Bible, I try to do this in the notes. I didn't get all of them, but I try. Is when the word Lord appears in your Bible like this. This is um, what we call the, uh, the tetragrammaton. It's a fancy word for Yahweh or Y-H-W-H. We don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but we say Yahweh. Some people say Jehovah. It's the same. Just if you're German, you don't use Yah. You use J, right? You're Germans. Crazy Germans. Use J's instead of Y's, right? So um, they say Jehovah, and they say V instead of W, so Volkswagen, right? That's a German pronunciation. We say Yahweh. It's the same thing, right? When you see this, we use the word Lord because the Jews had a tradition of respect for Yahweh's name. And because they had respect for Yahweh's name, when they came to Yahweh in the text, they would instead say Adonai. Okay, which is Lord. So even though the text says Yahweh, they would say Adonai. So today, when we read in the Greek, so in the Greek, when they translated the Hebrew into Greek, they did not translate Yahweh. When they came to Yahweh every time, you know what they translated? You guys know what the word Lord is in Greek? You're taking Greek. You know it? Kurios. Or that's the Greek. Kurios, which means Lord. So sometimes you'll see Lord like this. That just means Yahweh. If you see Lord like this, 
it's Adonai, which means master or Lord. And if you see this, all caps, Lord God, that's Adonai Yahweh. And they can't say Lord, Lord, because it, does, it doesn't, um, uh, it's, it's confusing. Uh, so a lot of times it's Adonai Yahweh or Elohim Yahweh. It's a, no, it'd be, yeah, it's, actually, I think it's Elohim. Now, you got, now I'm confused. Hang on a second. Let me just check and see if I can find that. I'll get you the answer. Um, Are you doing that? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Michael Brown, who is a Jewish Christian. A brilliant man, yeah. 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 Uh, Yahweh Yeah, an expert in uh, Hebrew, actually. Bar Mitzvah. <laughs> right. But uh, he said the, the word Jehovah... And this is great if you run into a Jehovah's Witness because they make a big thing about being Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. You know, in the Bible it says, your Bible doesn't say, and you know, they really make a big deal out of it. They'll say, does God have a name? That's what they'll yeah, say. That's yeah. what Go ahead. Keep going. So, uh, anyway, Dr. Brown says the word, the name Jehovah didn't appear until the 13th or 14th century. <laughs> right, that, 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 that vocalization. That vocalization of it, yeah. correct. And so I, I looked it up. It's not, it's not uh, I was wrong. It's not Yahweh Adonai. It's, it's Yahweh Elohim. So God means Elohim. But because the, this is common, Lord God, you'll see that also. It's the fact that um, sometimes, uh, but I'm pretty sure sometimes Adonai comes with that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point being, when you see this, that's Yahweh. And so when you look at your notes here, holy, holy, holy is what? Yahweh of hosts. Okay. Um, some translations have started translating Yahweh. I don't actually think that's a smart thing to do because it ignores what happened with the Greek text and how they, Jesus and his disciples treated the Old Testament. But I understand, you have to understand this is the name of God, the covenant name of God, not just... Um, this, not this. So the next one, if you look at Adonai, is the next title quoted in Matthew 22. It's really clear in Psalm 110. See the two different lords? Yahweh said to my Lord. Yahweh said to my Adonai. Adonai just means my Lord. Adonai is, is Lord, and Adonai is my Lord. Just to be, you know, um, the I ending is, is a possessive. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The key here is that when he says, my Lord, David has a Lord. David has a, someone who is a Lord. And he's his son. And that's the whole point being made is David's son was his Lord. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, you're, you know, in our culture today, parents worship kids. You know, do it, I'll do anything for my kids. No, that is so backwards from the Middle Eastern culture. It's daddy's the boss, right? And grandpa's the big boss. And your kids do stuff for you. You don't, you know, you're the one who's in charge. And no parent would ever be accused of, quote, unquote, worshiping his kids. That's just not what would happen. That's a Western thing. Uh, so that's part of Jesus' critique here. Is he says, how, how is it that David has a Lord who's his son, who's his descendant. So anyway, keep going. We're not going to get through these. The Theophanies, 
prove his existence. Um, anytime the Lord is manifest or revealed, it's a manifestation of the Son, not the Father. I mentioned that actually tonight uh, in our it's one of memory verses. No one has seen the God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So when the Son appear, when God appears in the Old Testament, which he does at times, he does appear in form, in some sort of form, so that he's visible. I mean, look at uh, Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to him. Yahweh appeared to him. 1.2.4.1. You see that? Um, the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth tree at Mamre. He was sitting at the tent door of the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, different word, Adonai, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Let, you know, whatever. And you know the story. But we also see the angel of the Lord in Judges 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Orpah, or Ophrah, which belonged to Joash. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, as you shall save Israel. Such a fascinating phrase that Yahweh turned to him. This is not a disembodied voice. This is a, this is a manifestation in some way of Yahweh to these people. I get, I get, we get this picture from our Sunday school, I think, maybe. From growing up, or maybe from the movies we watched, that when God spoke to Abraham or to Gideon in this sense, like they're standing there and there's this big voice from heaven. Gideon, follow me. You know, that's the impression I always had. But if you read it carefully, it says things like Yahweh turned to him. So there is a sense in which there's these theophanies. There's this, this uh, visible manifestation of the son who's there, maybe as a man. And he's speaking with Yahweh's authority. To, to Gideon. And that's throughout the Old Testament. See, the old angel of the Lord is distinct from Yahweh because he talks to Yahweh. We see that in, in Zechariah 1. The angel of Yahweh who, who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So we have sometimes the angel of the Lord and Yahweh are distinct, yet, I put this interesting note, after the incarnation of Christ, the angel of Yahweh ceases to appear in the word of God. You do not see the angel of the Lord appearing. Because the angel of the Lord is a manifestation of God, a theophany, a visual representation of God in some way, not in all his glory, but in some way, so that um, he may be seen. And that's, anytime that happens, that's the sun being manifest, according to John. Okay? So that's the eternality and the... Pre-existence of God, including to talk about theophanies. Any questions on that stuff? Number two, let's talk about Old Testament prophecies. Prophecies concerning Christ's lineage. So when we talk about prophecies, there's kind of two different ways that we can consider prophecies. Sometimes prophecies are extremely clear. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes prophecies are more uh, complicated than they appear on the face. We're going to deal with pretty clear prophecies here, and um, we might get into some of the more complicated ones. But just so you're aware, it's not always so simple as Messiah is coming, uh, and he'll be in Bethlehem. Like, that's really clear. Or he will be from the line of David. That's very clear. But um, and we'll, get, we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, virgin birth. Okay, Genesis 3.15. I want you to know this word, okay? Proto-evangelium. 
I, I sometimes call, and our book calls it protevangelium. I've always called it protoevangelium. Apparently, I looked it up. Apparently, it's kind of either or. Doesn't matter. This is a very important term. Do you see it in your notes? Okay. Highlight it. You will need to know it for the quiz one of these days. I'm telling you, you'll need to know that term. You need to be able to spell it. Because what it means is first gospel. And this is, this is speaking of the seed of the woman. And it's the first mention of the, the hope of the gospel. And we call it in seed form. You have this Genesis 3.15 um, where, in fact, if you turn there, um, I don't have it in your notes, but God says, in, in the curse against the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I don't know if you've heard this before, but this is the first hope. So after man sins in the garden, God gives hope about a coming champion, a coming seed who will overcome this serpent and his seed and his descendants. And there will be a battle that ensues. And, and really from this, we know very little. Um, this is a principle we talked about last time called progressive, progressive revelation. So if you look at Genesis 3.15, you don't really know, like, what does it mean that he will crush his head and he will be bruised by his heel? All we know is that there will be a conflict and he will be injured in the process, but the, the enemy will be crushed. Okay. Know that. But we don't know how. We don't know what, what this means, what this even looks like. Like, what will her seed look like? Will it be a man? Will it be a woman? Will it be, I mean, it's a very interesting language, the seed of the woman. Like, typically in the Bible, seed comes from men. Okay? In fact, even in the Greek, the word Greek, the Greek word for seed is sperma. Okay? So the idea of, of, of male providing seed is, is very normal in biblical language and is scientifically correct. But in this context, they talk about the seed of the woman. Now, why is that important? Because when Jesus, Jesus is not a seed of a man. Okay, he is of the seed of a woman because he's virgin born. It's a really interesting, like it's there. It's there again in seed form. I'm not trying to use that in two different ways, but it's there in the, in, in root, like it's there, but you don't know all the details. And so the way I like to describe it, we talk about progressive revelation is this is giving us a truth that's very, that's not very precise. It, it's, it's there, but we don't know all the details yet. And as the scripture unfolds as progressive revelation gives us more and more details we can zone in tighter and tighter on what exactly is happening that truth okay it's there the whole time it's just we can't quite see it clearly until you go through scripture and you see oh i see it's jesus and he comes and how he defeats satan is by the cross and the resurrection and now we through him can be saved and have redemption and have overcoming death etc so that's the proto evangelium or prot evangelium Evangelium. Um, Matthew one sixteen also references the idea of by whom, uh, emphasizing Jesus is born without Joseph's participation. Um, I didn't put that in your notes, did I? One, normally I have been. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So the of whom is Mary. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. So again, the emphasis on Jesus being uh, virgin born. Um, Jesus is of the line of Shem. We see this, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. 
line of Abraham directly there. Uh, Abraham and to his seeds the promises were made. Uh, he does not say to seeds, but to many, but to one, to your seed as who is Christ, Galatians 3. The line of Isaac, again, continuing on. And then Jacob, further narrowing the Messianic line to be from Jacob, not Esau. We have the two nations in the womb, Jacob and Esau. And um, the Lord chooses Jacob's seed. Also, we see in Numbers 24, a star and a scepter rule will come out of Jacob. This is where a lot of people think that the um, Magi would have seen or known about this. The star from Jacob rising out of Israel and scepter rising out of Israel. See, associating that with rule and therefore coming to find the ruler. Line of Judah is the next blank, blank 2.1.6. 2, 1, line of Judah. Um, the scepter, the rule shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh has two possible meanings because of the Hebrew is a little bit unclear. It can either mean until the one to whom it belongs comes, which is a fan, it's kind of complicated in English, but it has this idea that there's one who owns this throne and he will be the final ruler. I like that. Shiloh also means man of peace. Uh, Shalom means peace. So Shiloh is a peaceful one. Um, also the line, I'm sorry, misspellings here, but it should be line of David. Line of David. Um, Jesus is promised in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In the short term, this is speaking of Solomon. In the long term, this is speaking of Jesus. Because he will have an established throne forever. And this brings up an important part about prophecy, which I want to get to. And that is what I call telescoping. It's not original with me. This is something that theologians talk about when you talk about prophecy. Telescoping. And what telescoping looks like, a good way of, of, of describing this, you may have seen this before, is that when a prophet speaks, he stands like a man looking at a mountain range and can see the peaks of mountains. And God's events, God's big moments, the day of the Lord, so to speak, times when God steps in, are often seen smushed together from his vantage point. So Jesus does this in Luke chapter 4 when he says, um, he gets up and he reads and he says, and he reads from Isaiah, um, I have come to set captives free and to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. And he closes the book and sits down. What's the next phrase? Do you know from Isaiah what the next phrase is? And the day of vengeance of our God. He's come to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. If you keep, I mean, in the middle of a sentence, he stops. Because Jesus is first coming. So like the way I'd like to... So this is the, the prophet's day. So you have Solomon who fulfills part of this. But Jesus in his first coming fulfills part of this. Being son of David ruling. And his second coming he will fulfill the full aspect of it. And the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus' day of vengeance is coming when he will rule like with a rod of iron. He has not done that yet. He has not sat on the throne of David yet. He will. He's been promised to. So does that, I don't know if that makes sense, if that helps you kind of grasp what's going on there. Because sometimes that's a hurdle for people. They say, wait, is he talking about Solomon or is he talking about Jesus? The answer, as so many things are in theology, is yes, 
right? It's not either or, it's both. It's yes. Um, okay? That gets a little bit into the weeds on the difficulty part. This is not a prophecy class, but we are talking about Christology, so. Anything before we get into Christ's birth a little bit more? Okay. Um, his manner of birth was the virgin birth. We see this in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. This is important. The word um, Hebrew, the Hebrew word for virgin is nyalma, alma. And the Hebrew can mean a woman who's of marriageable age, like a young woman. And the assumption from everyone involved would be this person is a virgin in the technical sense. So when the Bible was translated from Hebrew into Greek, does anybody know when that was on our timeline? About when was the Bible translated from Hebrew into Greek? The Old Testament, I should say. We're talking about 200 B.C. Okay, about 200. Yeah, it's called the Septuagint. Or the LXX is the abbreviation of the 70 is what it's... Because there's this theory, there was this traditional view that these 70 guys got in a room and they all or got in different rooms, they all translated the Bible, came out with the exact same copy and, oh, it's from God, right? No, that, was their, that was the traditional view and of course that didn't happen. That's like a, it's a made up thing, but it's called the LXX. If you see it in the literature, you'll see that. But this was about 200 BC. Some Jewish people realized that... Um, Right around this time, there's something else really important happening, and it's called Hellenization. If you know your world history, uh, Hellenization was when, after uh, Alexander the Great conquered the known world, he brought with him the, the Greek culture. And the Greek culture was um, the opposite of Roman culture. Greek culture was you become like us. It's a little bit like American culture in the sense that we export culture. When we take, when Americans go places, they make places Americanized. They bring McDonald's. Right? They bring Levi jeans. They speak English. Right? They, they Americanize places. Um, the Romans, their strategy was, you be you. Just pay us money. Okay? So the Romans um, let everybody kind of have their own independent cultures. But the Greeks kind of cleared the deck. So that's why the Bible is written in Greek, even though the Roman Empire was dominant. It wasn't written in Latin or, you know. Italian. It was written in Greek because Greek was the language spoken. So that's what happened is the Jewish people got together and they said, our people don't know Hebrew anymore. Our people can't read Hebrew. We need to translate the Bible into Greek. And when they translated the Bible into Greek, they came to this word, the virgin shall conceive, which is Nyalma. Okay, Alma. You may have known um, someone named Alma. Alma is, is, is young woman or, or female. Okay, Alma. Uh, ironically, the, 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 the Mormons have a book in their Bible, their book in their Book of Mormon called Alma, and it's about a man named Alma, which makes about as much sense as uh, naming your, your, your little boy Sue. Um, so that's just another little... Uh, right, 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 right. So when they did this, they used the word Parthenos. Um, Parthenos. They had two words at their disposal. They could have said young woman. Or they could say virgin. Parthenos is virgin. They recognized, as we recognize, that he's talking about a virgin conceiving, even though that seems kind of crazy. And so even before Christ, this is 200 years before Christ even came on the scene. So this was not translated after Jesus came. Oh, yeah, look, we see it. It's right there. This was prior to Jesus coming on the scene. 
Very important to see that even here in the, um, the doctrine of the seed of the woman instead of the seed of the man being, uh, you know, virgin born means that Jesus uh, does not have the sin of Adam. He has a chance to be the last Adam, as we'll see in um, Romans chapter 5. The place is Bethlehem. Again, Micah 5, 2. A couple of prophecies about his life. I do want to just kind of breeze through these for a second. Uh, he has a forerunner, according to um, Micah and Isaiah here. Um, I, I do want to make a note here. The phrase, before your face, I, ha- I hate it when the, our translations do that. I will send my messenger before your face. It just means ahead of you. Okay, That's a Hebraism. That means ahead of you, in front of you. Uh, if, you, if you see that in your Bible, uh, before your face, I will send my messenger before your face, and he shall. It just means uh, before you go, ahead of you, okay, um, in front of you. So, so John the Baptist would be his forerunner. He'd go out in front of him. What would his mission be? This was the verse I mentioned earlier, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. God has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound. He is anointed with the Holy Spirit in his ministry. He's preaching the gospel to the poor and he's releasing people out of spiritual bondage. The people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah 9, 2. His ministry is bearing the illnesses of the people. We see that uh, when the disciples of John the Baptist asked Jesus about his Messiahship, he, meant, he mentions Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. His teaching, the next section, is that he opens his mouth in parables. That's your blame. Jesus' teaching, teaching will be marked by parables. That's telling the truth through stories that have both to have two different techniques, two different purposes. One is to obscure truth, and the other is to open up truth. Jesus tells us that's part of his his job in telling parables is that if you're just walking by Jesus talking about a farmer throwing seed, you're like, what's this guy doing? Telling stories about a farmer casting out seed on the ground? Like, that's kind of pointless. Like, oh, that's a little... Or, oh, there's a story about a dad who has two sons and one runs away and then comes back. Oh, that's sweet. That's kind of cool. You don't understand there's a spiritual meaning there. If, you're, if, you, have a heart, if you have blinders on, if you have a hard heart, you're not going to listen to truth. If you have an open heart, you'll be receptive to truth. I didn't get through all I wanted to. But um, we are going to cover the rest of this next week. Go ahead and read ahead. Uh, we do want to cover his presentation, his rejection, his death, etc. But um, then we'll talk about his incarnation and the rest of that next time. Okay? Uh, for your quiz next time, um, your reading is on the incarnation, the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, and what's called the hypostatic union, which just means he is both God and man. Okay? So do that reading, and if you have questions, uh, let me know. Okay? Have a great night.